This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for December 12th, 2021. We'll be talking about Declaration 2 with Dr. Carter Charles. I'm Rebecca Deschwainitz, and along with fellow Dialogue Foundation board members Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, I'm excited to be part of this discussion today. For those of you joining us for the first time, we'll invite you to check out our previous lessons, which are all available as podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com. Our website also features the entire 50 plus years of the journal's scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. Be sure to check out our first Dialogue in Review panel, which happened last month and featured authors from our summer 2021 indigeneity issue talking about indigenous perspectives and experiences in the LDS faith tradition. As we near the end of 2021, we issue a special invitation for you to support the work of Dialogue. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Fulfilling Jean's vision in the 21st century has meant making the journal and all of our digital offerings free for online users. Moving away from a subscription model has required careful planning and budgeting. Please help us create a fund that secures the future of dialogue. You can find out more about sustaining dialogue at givetodialogue.com. And uh, never fear subscriptions for our print copies are still available. Uh, I just got mine in the mail this week, which um, I'm happy to hold in my hands. For today's uh, gospel study lesson, if you're with us live on Zoom, a reminder that you're welcome to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll also follow along with what folks have to say on Facebook, where we are also live. We have the opportunity today to explore this important part of the LDS canon with Dr. Carter Charles, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Church History and Doctrine at BYU. Carter became a Latter-day Saint in 1996 while living in French Guyana in South America. He was born and raised in Haiti and was able to serve eight months of his mission there before being reassigned to the West Indies. He studied in Bordeaux, France, where he lived for 17 years. Uh, yesterday, he and his wife, Sabrina, celebrated 22 years of marriage. They are the parents of four children who are treasured blessings, even if the little one tries everyone's patience at times. We are grateful for Dr. Charles's preparation and, and the insights he'll share today, as is true with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class. However, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Brigham Young University, or any other organization. Our opening prayer today will be offered by Grace Solberg, who is a native of Utah and a recent history graduate of Brigham Young University. Her honors thesis, Peculiar Students of a Peculiar Institution, analyzes the experiences of students of color at BYU, as well as white, how white students have constructed, enforced, and performed what it has meant to be Black, White, Asian, and Indigenous. Grace currently serves as a substitute Sunday school teacher in the Orem YSA 41st Ward. Our closing prayer at the end of the lesson will be given by Lindsay Mesa. Lindsay is from Lake in the Hills, Illinois, a suburb, a suburb of Chicago. She's an undergraduate student at BYU studying history and Latin American studies. 
She plans, um, actually both she and Grace have plans to attend graduate school. Lindsay hopes to work in museums. She loves reading, cooking, and trying new things. I'll also add that both Grace and Lindsay have been involved in uh, the BYU Slavery Project and both recently presented some of their research for the project at Emory University at its In the Wake of Slavery and Dispossession Symposium. And I'll include a link so you can check out their presentations there. Uh, to begin, we'll enjoy music. Uh, the selection today is Betelehemu, uh, and a Nigerian carol by Ala Tanji and Wendell Whalem, and arranged by Barrington Brooks. The recording is of a 2013 performance by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, accompanied by percussionists of the orchestra at Temple Square. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We are so grateful for this opportunity to gather together as saints and to study such an important part of our history. And we please bless that you open our hearts and our minds, that we can be sensitive to the spirit and that we can receive our own personal revelation and draw closer to thee. And again, we just are grateful for all that we have and for this opportunity today. And we say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, then. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, I am happy to be here with you. I'm going to um, share my um, slides with you. Hopefully, oh, I'm probably not sharing the right things. Let me start over. <laughs> okay, that's better to share this one. All right, I actually uh, find it um, fitting that, uh, well, triply uh, fitting that we should begin um, this uh, discussion on um, official declaration one, article of faith, articles of faith, and official declaration two. To begin with, um, Betelehemu. Uh, it is triply fitting first because of the theme Christmas, right? We're in December. Um, we already, and I hope, have the, the spirit of Christmas growing uh, in our hearts. And then uh, secondly, because it is a Nigerian carol, as Rebecca uh, introduced, and um, Nigeria is, of course, in this part of the world that had uh, played a significant role in the uh, coming forth of the 1978 revelation that we'll be uh, discussing today. And then thirdly, fitting because um, this is being sung by the Tabernacle Choir now at Temple Square. Um, it speaks to the, the richness of diversity and of how different cultures uh, bring something to the table. It's really wonderful to see the choir, um, you know, singing something and the way they're doing it is not unlike what we have uh, in uh, Psalms. Uh, I think it's Psalms 92, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth, make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King, the sea rear, roar and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let's make sure and get this out of my way. Just give me a second here. There you go. The floats, the floods clap their hands and the hills uh, be joyful together. And we also clap our hands. So it's wonderful to see the choir clapping hands and singing a joyful uh, noise uh, unto the Lord. Um, the uh, subject that's going, uh, let me skip that because we've just listened to it. So it's not necessary anymore. 
So the subject that will uh, interest us uh, today for our discussion is um, the, in the Come Follow Me are made of the Articles of Faith, like I have said, and then Official Declaration 1 and Official Declaration 2, to which I would add uh, the Race and the Priesthood essay. At the beginning of the Come Follow Me, they do um, add a couple of additional um, material that we can rely on. And um, I do not see any way we can study these things without looking at the important work that the Race and the Priesthood essay does. Um, very quickly to sum up the Articles of Faith, this is coming from the Wentworth Letter. Uh, this is planned in 1842 by Joseph Smith. Official, official Declaration 1 is uh, October 6, 6, 1890. And then the Race and Priesthood, uh, well, Official Declaration 2, my bad, <laughs> is uh, 1978 with the uh, Race and Priesthood essay in 2013, if, I, if my memory uh, serves me right. So uh, in essence, we're dealing here with um, something, uh, a material that is uh, pretty eclectic and it requires us to, to jump through different times and also through space. Um, we're dealing with material that are both uh, in the canon and some of them, the race and the priesthood are not uh, in the canon. We're looking at different uh, uh, realities uh, in the church in terms of uh, demographics, in terms of leadership. And so, um, those things, you know, um, are uh, what to me make it difficult to bring all of these uh, subjects together. There is certainly a, a common thread, right? Common thread uh, being continuing revelation, uh, prophetic authority, and uh, these. Uh, this thread to me is something we can um, address if we were to focus, for instance, on uh, official declaration uh, two or 1978 Revelation, which is what I am going to do here. And, and I hope it's, uh, it's okay uh, with uh, everyone. I mean, uh, Sunday school teachers are given a lot of latitude, in fact, in terms of uh, what uh, the, the Spirit inspires them to, to focus on. So, so we're going to, to do that. And there are several other reasons why I am going to uh, be a subjective uh, in my choice also here. Uh, first, uh, it is the fact that very few uh, people, very few Latter-day Saints even, ask me questions about what we believe in uh, or uh, about plural marriage. I think at this time in our history, in the existence of uh, the church and of the restoration, people are uh, pretty informed about what we believe in and they know where to turn to to find the, the basic aspects of our beliefs, including of our history as well. But they do need to be guided every now and then. Uh, plural marriage is uh, pretty much, uh, I mean, I, I always dread when I have to teach that, but um, it's still very much a, a non-issue for uh, contemporary, for the rising uh, generation. What is an issue for them, however, is societal, uh, institutional racism, uh, white supremacy, especially in the past five years that we have had in, in the United States, although not uh, exclusively, pretty much uh, throughout the world. In France right now, where I studied, there is um, a presidential ele election uh, afoot and questions of identity and of race are uh, actually uh, come to the fore. So lots of people, 
uh, especially Latter-day Saints, ask me questions uh, about race in the church and in society. They, they have questions about, okay, how do I belong in this church? How do I belong uh, in the world? Uh, just yesterday, I had a Zoom conversation with a, a fellow Latter-day Saint in France uh, who is a native of Togo and who had those same questions. And I get emails from members of the church here in the United States asking me, okay, how do I speak to this 26, 28-year-old Latter-day Saint who is Black, who has a master's degree? So she is very educated and she has served the mission and she is thinking about you know, uh, uh, stopping attending the church because she doesn't feel that she belongs. So overly, to me, the uh, discussion the, uh, is um, going to be relevant as we address questions of race and diversity and belonging in the church and look at our history, um, uh, honestly, and also contrast that with uh, our, uh, our doctrine. So because of the above, if I had uh, my way, I would uh, recommend to whoever is in curriculum, to whoever is working with the brethren, and to whoever of the brethren is in charge of that, I would humbly recommend that instead of the uh, eclectic uh, recommendation to have so many different subjects, uh, I think we would help uh, Sunday school teachers if we were to tell them, you know what, focus exclusively, exclusively on uh, race and the priesthood and diversity and belonging, and look at our history and what our theology has to say. Uh, in my view, we have a very expensive theology that uh, allows to look at the troubling, complicated uh, material, and yet come out of this with... Um, the kind of spiritual power that is needed for us to, to, to be deeply rooted in the world and at the same time in our uh, religion as we try to make a difference. So a couple of things I would recommend. So study official declaration, uh, for instance, along with uh, section 129, 132, uh, which is what was uh, for uh, November and then focus exclusively on uh, official declaration two. Um, I would also recommend a rewarding of official declaration two to remove inaccurate, imprecise uh, language, language that tends to blur the lines and somewhat entertain a culture and give the impression that certain things started, you know, a long time ago and further confuse Latter-day Saints. Uh, for, for instance, uh, we say that people of every race have been baptized. Yes, that's true. But uh, after, um, you know, when the policy became fully implemented after 1908, uh, this is something that's uh, kind of a shortcut because we just like we say, you know, we did not uh, allow blacks uh, of African ancestry to be ordained to the priesthood and also access the temple. We need to say that we did not openly uh, proselytize, proselytize them. I mean, the, the church entered Haiti, for instance, uh, first because the person who was interested was a, was a white Haitian, not a black Haitian. The mission president then asked him to send a photo to, to make sure that he was seeking baptism. Uh, you know, he, he had the right skin color in order to be baptized in the church. I would also uh, recommend... Um, uh, you know, um, they uh, remove this early in its history uh, phrase because 
Um, well, how early are we talking about? Uh, I, I mean, if we say early, um, I, I think we give the impression that, you know, like 1835, 1836, well, that's not, that is not what is happening in the church. This means that we probably toss out about 21 years in the history of the church, because if anything, the uh, exclusionary uh, policies, uh, we know that they um, started to be articulated in uh, 1852. And then even then, it's even more complex than that. So, so I would say that if anything, maybe specify, beginning in 1852, the church started to articulate a policy, uh, because when we look at the history, that's we see that it's not that early, unless we're thinking early, you know, uh, in ways that we shouldn't. I would also uh, recommend um, uh, uh, clarifying of the language. Church records offer no clear insight because to me that doesn't really um, stand uh, scrutiny. Um, we have a lot, a lot of material uh, uh, that speaks to the fact that we have something that develops uh, over the years. And um, while we don't know everything, um, we know a lot. Just like I would recommend that in the Sunday school recommendations for this uh, unit, um, at the end they say, they recommend uh, that members, they say it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, to a certain extent, I do tell my students also that they can uh, follow prophetic recommendations in this area, but this is also uh, something that is um, troubling and problematic to a certain extent. I hope to get to that um, at some point. Okay, um, so possible connections, if I were uh, teaching that for Sunday school, uh, although I would probably make it less historical um, and, and focus more on the religious and spiritual dimensions of it. But anyway, we're also here to uh, embrace uh, things by study and by faith. So connections between the Articles of Faith and Official Declaration 1. Um, first, I think uh, Article 2 um, makes it clear that there is something of uh, an individual uh, responsibility uh, before God. And therefore, um, just like we're not responsible for Adam's transgressions, um, I, I think we, um, latter, early, some Latter-day Saints, understood this, you know, moved away, actually, from this language and made it so that, you know, um, people would be... Um, um, punished, Blacks would be punished for transgressions, supposedly, trans, supposed transgression that were not even theirs. So um, there, there is something that's pretty clear here in terms of our theology that speaks to the fact that God does not, is not going to pass blanket uh, condemnation on all of his uh, children or, or a group of his children because of their sin color. Article 3 also uh, is pretty universalist in its uh, approach to me. It uh, says that all of humankind uh, may be saved. And the, uh, the, the standard, the qualifier for salvation here um, uh, in this article is obedience. Okay. And then there's probably, I would say, Article 10, uh, which uh, speaks to this uh, uh, idea of the gathering of Israel. Um, I, I would see that, however, in a way consistent with uh, Abraham, 10, Abraham 2.10, which says that as many as receive this gospel are uh, of the seed of Abraham and therefore of the house of Israel by covenant. And that would be uh, also consistent with what Brother Russell has been uh, teaching us uh, lately, gathering Israel as we understand it 
today, not as it was understood um, in the uh, 20th century uh, before the 1970 revelation where uh, we as a church um, actively uh, proselytized, proselytized uh, uh, people of uh, white uh, ancestry and um, or uh, Native Americans, thank goodness they did, moved away from some of the uh, exclusionary uh, uh, interpretations, but uh, avoided um, uh, Blacks. So uh, to me, those are the connections because they speak to an inclusive uh, theology uh, of uh, salvation. I'm going to uh, skip uh, that part where I uh, reflect on uh, culture, religion, and, um, and past and present. To, to take us to uh, a little bit of, I hope that will be um, fun and um, make sense if we have younger and Lord of the Ring uh, fans uh, watching us here instead of listening to me all the time. So it's just a few seconds. I hope this plays well and that um, everyone gets to hear me, but you have to listen very carefully. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. All right, so I think it's uh, important as we are uh, considering um, the 1978 revelation to um, realize that um, we would not have had the, that revelation and would not have needed it if we did not have in the first place a, a moving away uh, over time from the inclusive uh, theology. And I looked only at uh, articles of faith, not other uh, revelations from that inclusive theology of salvation to an exclu exclusive uh, theology in which from obedience as the qualifier, we move to race and skin color as the qualifier. Basically, uh, in this uh, theology, uh, whiteness actually uh, becomes uh, the, the qualifier. And, and this is where uh, it's, um, it's, it's problematic and difficult. And uh, it's also great that we also have the 1978 revelation to say, okay, um, let's move away from this uh, human cultural theology to uh, the early uh, theology that God had uh, revealed. Um, so in, in the process, as uh, we heard from the uh, prologue of the Lord of the Rings, much that once was is lost. Things are going to be lost in the alleys, in the alleys of history. People are going to, uh, to forget so much so that what was not what is what we know for sure must not have been uh, a revelation as uh, that would have nullified everything inclusive that God revealed in the first place. That was forgotten and replaced by a, a practice. Uh, in the church's race and the priesthood essay, this moving away is expressed uh, as uh, in, in language such, such as this one. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was restored amidst a highly contentious racial culture uh, in which whites were afforded great privilege. 
And it goes on to give uh, an example in politics, for instance, 1890, US Congress limited citizenship to uh, free white persons only. Yeah. Um, this contentious uh, racial culture uh, is also, I would uh, propose, uh, uh, in terms of example, something that um, made it into uh, the religious culture, um, not only in the United States, but we'll, we'll uh, focus uh, on the United States for the sake of time here. Okay. So uh, here, this is from uh, Albert Raboteau uh, on a Sunday morning, 1792-93, uh, for instance. Okay. Uh, there is uh, Black parishioners, they found themselves in a situation where they're asked uh, to basically to move to the back of uh, the church. You know, this is Rosa Parks uh, before Rosa Parks, uh, in essence. And one of the things that's always been um, surprise, shocking to me is how in this text we are seeing that they uh, they are constructing privilege around the sacred the altar being the most sacred place there is a sense that if you are black then you do not need you do not need to have the privilege of being so close to the altar it's a place that belongs first to to people of white ancestry so much shocking that they're going to remove absalom jones uh, from his knees and that's going to you know, be the origin of what we know today as uh, the black church in the United States. Okay. Now this is you know, 1792, 93, but this is something that's going to continue in uh, US culture until it's, it makes it in our own uh, history. And, and this is what we have uh, in the uh, essays again, where it's in the essay where it says for much of its history from mid 1800s, which is more accurate to me than early in its history as we have it in the header of uh, official declaration too. And it goes on to say what, what happened uh, in terms of, well, we did not ordain people of black ancestry, uh, nor allow them uh, to participate uh, in temple ordinances. What this means is that we, it, we did something that's probably um, worse than removing Absalom Jones and his uh, fellow parishioners from the altar uh, in, uh, in that church, because we don't only remove them from altar with that policy that was articulated, we uh, put a morato moratorium on salvation for people of African ancestry, uh, contrary to uh, early uh, revelations. Okay. So, this is where I think we need to realize that, you know, there's no reliable uh, evidence of, um, and that's, that's accurate. There's no reliable evidence that, you know, Joseph Smith or people in his time, I mean, even though they did, or part of the culture, um, you know, that they denied a pursuit or uh, the highest temple rituals that we had um, to people of African ancestry. What we have, in fact, is uh, rather, this from 1833, uh, Free People of Color, some of you may be familiar with. Um, Phelps is writing to um, Black Latter-day Saints uh, back east who are considering gathering with the saints in Zion, in Missouri, or in Kirtland. And uh, Phelps is giving us insights here into what the church's policy was, was regarding people of color, meaning that there, there were concerns, then there, there was the culture and there was politics and there was the realities of Missouri. And Phelps is telling us that the church had no special rule. 
Okay. And he also goes on to, to say, you know, this phrase that I find very interesting, uh, as long as they, people of color, are in the hands of a merciful God, they as well as we, right? So that is this inclusive universalistic understanding, shun appearance of evil. Okay. Um, and, and to me, to me, the, these words, they, they speak, you know, um, to uh, the theology and the culture that was at work uh, in the church. And, and to me, you know, today we are emphasizing a lot, 2 Nephi 26.33, right? All, all, all I come to God. Well, to me, you know, this language that we are all in the hands of a merciful God, uh, he is articulating with that uh, the, the position and the perspective, perspective of the church. And it's theology, really. Yeah. Um, let's see. So what does that look like? Well, much that once was being lost also means that many people who were, right, and uh, because the church had no special rule, these people who once were, we are not going to know about them. That's the case, as uh, a lot of you know about of uh, great, uh, Jane Manning James, of uh, Elijah Abel, uh, of Green Flake. Uh, by the way, there's, uh, there's been a movie about um, uh, Jane Manning James, and there is one recently uh, by, uh, about, about Jane Manning James, and one recently uh, about Green Flake. Anyway, I hope you uh, you forgive me. I sometimes I'm losing the, the English language. It makes sense because I am not a native speaker, <laughs> even though I sometimes sound like that. So um, we also have, aside from these people, uh, Q. Walker Lewis, whom Brigham Young said in, in 1847 uh, was one of the best elders okay? um, as he was talking to uh, William McCurry. And William McCurry is also, you know, uh, he is also black. Uh, he is uh, apparently experiencing racism, but that also his uh, story tells us that uh, Black Latter Day Saints they were also uh, in uh, uh, the business of um, claiming prophetic authority for themselves and engaging in uh, some of the things that were not uh, appreciated that we don't like in our history, including uh, spiritual wifery, for instance. So uh, we, we did have blacks uh, in the church. I'm going to fast forward over the facts about. Um, Green Flake, um, but he is also an interesting figure to look at if we want to understand how complex uh, this uh, story is, including how complex a personality Brigham Young himself is. Um, there is also uh, Elijah Abel. His uh, story is important because, remember, uh, Phelps is writing in 1833, and uh, what we uh, know, um, thanks to great historians, including the colleagues at Black Century of Black Mormons, um, is that uh, Abel uh, is uh, baptized in 1832. Um, he is ordained an elder in 1836, January, and within a year he is ordained uh, a 70. Now, of course, a 70 uh, today does not fulfill the same function, do not, does not have the same responsibility. Well, not exactly in the church in the sense that they are today generally general authorities or area authorities, whereas uh, in the 19th century, um, they, they are ordained generally when they are being sent on missions, but regardless, they uh, have an office in the priesthood uh, that is consistent uh, over time. So uh, Abel is also washed and anointed, and, and this is also one of the things that I'm very excited about because he is participating uh, in, in, in 1836. This is the highest uh, temple ordinance that we have, 
And, and this ordinance is not understood uh, along uh, color lines. Um, uh, he is performing a uh, temple uh, baptism for the dead uh, in 1840. Um, and then we know that he is denied uh, uh, the endowment in 1879. Uh, that's long after Brigham Young uh, is dead. Also long after Brigham Young, he is returning from a mission. So Brigham Young is being Brigham Young in many ways. Uh, he is um, uh, saying a lot of uh, things, making extraordinary claims and statements. But what I am seeing also is that he is not necessarily nullifying priesthood uh, the priesthood of people who had been ordained. Um, Elijah Abel is functioning in his priesthood even after Brigham Young's death. And then there's uh, here uh, probably, uh, well, not probably for sure, my favorite person uh, in church uh, history. Uh, my great-great-grandma, I don't know how many great I should put in there, I did not think about it. And then I always like to tell students, okay, um, this is uh, the first time I ever lie, but it speaks to something that I greatly would love to have in uh, the hereafter. I would love uh, to have Jane Mining James as a relative because as she is experiencing, you know, the, the progressive moving away from the inclusive theology, and she's experiencing that uh, in her body, uh, in her flesh, after having walked hundreds of miles, um, trekked with the saints and trekked to join the saints, she is saying this, 1908, this is really when the policy uh, began to be fully implemented. I want to say right here that my faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as taught by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is as strong today, nay, it is, if possible, stronger than it was the day I was first baptized. If you have seen pictures of Jane Manning James in Utah, they generally show her in the, in the midst of uh, an ocean of white people. Okay. If you know her story as uh, we have been um, blessed to, to have her autobiography and also a biography uh, by, uh, that was, I'm not going to say more about this, but a uh, very good book anyway, that was uh, awarded uh, by the Mormon History Association. Anyway, Quincy Newell. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you see, uh, you learn a lot of things uh, about her, about the fact that she had every reason, if you're looking at it from a temporal perspective, from a cultural perspective, she had every reason not to want to be in Utah. Q. Walker Lewis, for instance, walked away from Utah probably because he did not feel that he belonged. And yet, Jane Manning James, in, in the face of uh, denial that affected her in her body, in her faith, it's pretty much like a bishop or a state president telling you that I don't believe that you qualify for temple recommend. And temple recommend is absolutely vital to your salvation, to our salvation. We believe that salvation goes through the gate of the temple. You're being denied that and you say, well, it's hurtful, but my faith is stronger. This is, to me, reminiscent of what, what Paul is saying, uh, writing to the Romans, that nothing 
nothing really can separate from from Jesus Christ, from the gospel, from the restoration. Um, to, to me, if I want to make it more personal, that has been my uh, experience uh, in the church as well. That is, I see areas, I see tons of areas where um, we, we um, erred. We made mistakes. Fallibility uh, shows itself um, in extraordinary ways. And at the same time, I also am absolutely, deeply, profoundly rooted in what the restoration is about in prophetic authority. That is, I believe that as, I mean, there is no prophet who is not flawed, who is not fallible. But I don't believe it carries over that authority is not there. Uh, and, and to me, that's that's what uh, Jane Manning James uh, is seeing. And, um, and this is not something to open up, to broaden uh, a little bit and then come back to uh, our own history. Um, when, when I look at the gospel uh, in general, um, I always see how you know, people, human beings, they have a tendency of um, self-exaltation, of a, a kind of self-exaltation that sometimes uh, allow for um, cultural uh, perceptions of themselves as a group uh, to seep in and take over and kidnap what God wants to do for humanity. And at the same time, because God cares about all of human beings, whenever uh, human beings, people he has chosen, let culture trap uh, his word and, and, and his gospel, he always intervenes and tries to remove, remove culture uh, from that uh, restoration. I'm not going to, to read that uh, uh, for us here for the sake of time, but uh, I'm sure all of us... Um, uh, uh, are mindful of the fact that in the in the New Testament we have an example. I don't go to the Old Testament, but there are, there are examples right there. But let's look at Peter. Peter is going to, um, you know, religion in, uh, for Peter becomes culture, and culture takes over the ability, uh, his ability to hear and accept God's mandate to reach out to all the. Christ told them to do that, to take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongues, and people. And it seems that they've not really been doing that the way they should have. And so God is going to send an angel to Peter uh, in Acts 10. And uh, Peter is reluctant. Uh, Peter, you know, God tells him through the angel, kill and eat, embrace the diversity of the world. Uh, that is, in, in Modern uh, revelation language, revelatory language, that would be thrust in thy sickle and reap. Thrust in thy sickle and actively, actively proselytize people of black ancestry, for instance. And then we have modern Peters uh, starting in the 19th century down to the 1978 revelation who are reluctant to do that. Well, Peter is reluctant, but God is also sending his angel, warning uh, Cornelius, who is not 
of the same culture and nation as Peter. And, and what we see is something similar uh, with leading to the uh, 1978 revelation. Um, I, I would uh, encourage watching a, a church documentary in which uh, there are times when the church really tries to be honest and, and open about what happened. Uh, that's what we have with this uh, documentary and an enzyme to the nation. Uh, in this, uh, there's this chapter in which it tells us the story of uh, Anthony uh, Obina, to whom God is speaking, just like God spoke to Cornelius of old. God is telling uh, Anthony, well, you know, as the church is restricting access to priesthood and to temples, to people of African ancestry, God is sending to me one of the modern Peters from beyond the veil to Anthony Obina to give Anthony a tour of a temple. And for Anthony Obina, that temple was the Salt Lake Temple. But Anthony Obina uh, is not the first, nor was it the last. Uh, we know from the records that beginning in 1946, modern Corneliuses with names like Oji Umordak, Onasti John Ekund, uh, Reverend uh, Udo Etted, they all warned of God and they began knocking at the doors of the modern Peters of the church. And there's also the story of Helvetio Martins, who is literally the face of the church in Brazil, even though he's not ordained uh, to the priesthood. And so when the church, when we are reading, you know, the um, raised in the priesthood article uh, as a official declaration, my bad, where it says, you know, um, we have witnessed. I, I find the language interesting. To me, it speaks to the fact that indeed the brethren witness the restoration taking, taking on an existence of its own. It's moving across the world. And that's the language that, you know, is in the first paragraph of uh, the race and the priesthood essay. People are embracing people of African ancestry. They do not say African ancestry, but people of many nations, they say, but of African ancestry specifically across the world in Brazil, uh, in, in Haiti, uh, in Nigeria, in thousands. 5,000 people in Nigeria became 20,000 at some point when Anthony Obina is having this experience. God is moving. The restoration is moving across the world. And so the 1978 revelation is continuing revelation to me, not only to the brethren. In fact, it's a blessing that it was not only to the brethren. It is continuing revelation to Cornelius's, Cornelius being a type, regardless of skin color, being a type, God is telling them, go and knock at the door, send messengers, ask for literature, ask for information, and tell them, tell them that you are already converted even before they send out the missionaries. I want to conclude uh, on uh, these statements a few things here. First, I own uh, the statement by Jane Manning James. I am thoroughly informed as a historian of our own complex 
um, troublesome history. I am able to situate that in larger, in the larger context of religious history. Um, I know that Brigham Young and the successive modern Peters, they put a moratorium on salvation for my people. Um, that is something that hurts because God never intended the restoration to be exclusive. We have a theology that is so inclusive that even if you are not a Latter-day Saint, if you are a good, honorable person, per section 96 of the Doctrine and Covenants, you have a chance of being saved. How inclusive is that theology? If you have not even been baptized in this church, you have a chance not only of being saved, per section 137, you can be exalted if you would have accepted. To me, that theology outweighs everything else, even though sometimes when I look at our history and when I look at the beating around the bush that we do, I find it painful. I hope we can fully embrace that theology, just like at some point we embrace bad theology. Lastly, um, in spite of everything, I own Brigham Young and successive leaders as much as I own Peter. They are my brothers in Christ. They are um, my fellow citizens in the kingdom. In fact, and perhaps it is especially, we need to have that fun, perhaps especially because, because they erred. I don't think God wants us to err. So I believe that, that my job, my mission is to look at the ever inclusive, um, broad nature of the restoration. And that is what keeps me going. That is, that is my fuel. And I think that's the fuel of the many Black Latter-day Saints who embrace the restoration even before, even before the 1978 revelation. Well, that was a lot of talking. Thank you so very much uh, for uh, bearing with me. So thank you, uh, Carter. Um, if it's okay, we'll do a little discussion. Um, I don't know if folks uh, who are on Zoom have, or Facebook uh, have questions or comments you want to pose. Uh, certainly some thoughts going through my mind. Um, you have some suggestions for the uh, Come Follow Me curriculum and the ways that we approach in our gospel study, um, you know, this history and uh that it's that it be more direct. Uh, stop beating around the bush, right? Um, and move forward to embracing uh, this inclusive theology. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about. Um, I think some of your comments um, as you're going through this history are are you're kind of reflecting on some of the pushback or some of the ways that people today still try to beat around the bush or excuse. Um, this history. And I'm wondering um, kind of what you're seeing and, and maybe changes in how people are thinking about that. Um, and 
kind of what a greater understanding of this history that you've outlined, um, you know, how that affects kind of how people are thinking about the church and about this topic. Thank you. Thank you for the question. I, I, I think um, one of the reasons why we're not seeing a more aggressive embrace is probably because of concern that if we, you know, um, probably because of concerns that some members their faith might um, be tried if they see, if we acknowledge fallibility and flaws on the part of the prophets. There's the sense that if we say that they erred, then the conclusion will be that there is no prophetic authority. So, so there is this desire to ensure and I believe that is important that members always understand that the authority is there. I have no doubt about that. Um, I don't think my fellow black brothers and sisters who have been struggling and are staying in the restoration have doubts about that. So, so I think that speaks more to still a colored white understanding of the restoration. Um, and probably the, and, and, and I see that more as the work of the middle managers than anything else <laughs> that who, who are, I mean, you know, with the come follow me, we, we knew, we heard about this instance where they tried to bring back some of the old many theories that, you know, um, skin of blackness and all of that. So I, so I think this middle managerial approach uh, does need to change. We do need to, just like we say, well, we did not give them priesthood. We need to say that prophets are fallible beings and teach them, teach the saints that that does not mean authority is not there. And show it, show, contextualize it. We have it in the Old Testament. We have it in the New Testament. Um, it's everywhere. So, so I think the more open, and we have been doing a lot of efforts in that direction. The more open we are, the better. Because what is hurting Latter-day Saints to me, especially um, Latter-day Saints of color, it is the beating around the bush. Um, you know, I, I, I went over that slide very quickly. For instance, we, we think that we need to make a case for prophetic authority, for instance, by saying that God once denied the priesthood um, to, uh, you know, some people. And, and to me, that's evidence of maybe it's not the offensive language of yesterday but it's still evidence of something of yesterday that is still haunting us because when when i read the old testament i do see indeed that god does choose a select group of people to officiate in the tabernacle for instance to do atonement but i when i read leviticus 16 23 24 i see that god is not denying all of the blessings of the priesthood to those who cannot enter the Holy of Holies or who are not ordained to that priesthood. Aaron is asked to make atonement both for himself and for the people. In our, in our history, that's not what we did. That's not what we did. We literally said, 
that we will not make atonement for you. And, and people who are not members of the church, who are a little bit versed in theology and in history, when they're looking at our history, that's what they're seeing. And we need to stop being, you know, um, trying to uh, not to uh, offend. In the process, we're offending blacks and we're trying not to offend whites. Yeah, so uh, I want to I want to invite Grace and Lindsay into the conversation too. Um, I'm I'm thinking the the kind of hyper concern for uh, I mean, there's this tension between um, you know what church leaders are supposed to be and represent. Um, and I like that you brought out that um, God doesn't want us to err because so often we've gone back to, um, you know, this is a comfortable way that we can think about these uh, restrictions that kind of this was allowed to happen or, um, you know, we've moved away a little bit that that kind of God wanted this to happen, but we're still, um, we're still suggesting that that those yeah errors, those sins, the sins of racism were, were okay. Uh, and it seems to, to, we seem to be stuck in a way, um, where like the, the story that you included about the black Methodists, um, walking out, um, where, uh, people of African descent were removed from proximity to the sacred, um, and we're still worried about, we're still centering and making sure that the sacred is accessible to white people, that they're comfortable with that, um, which, is, which is keeping um, people of color on the margins. Um, and we've really got to root out that, that kind of hyper concern with- um, That's the prophetic discomfort. call. That's, that's the prophetic call, root it out. Yeah. Carter, you're um, with respect to prophetic authority or, or rightness or correctness, it seems to me that you're actually making two steps. And I, I want to draw that out. That is, um, one step is to acknowledge um, fault, acknowledge failure, but that um, when we take just that step, what people tend to do is stick with the with kind of the great man theory of history, where where we put all the burden on Brigham Young and all the mm. all the credit to Spencer Kimball. <laughs> and, um, and what you have drawn out in in your lesson is how many people were involved, how many people of uh, black skin. I I mean I I love the. The Nigeria and Haiti and Brazil and and um, there's a whole and Manning. I mean, there's a whole history between Brigham Young and Spencer Kimball, if you will, and and the, the restoration happening from um, from the people. I guess I uh, draw that out a little, if you would, because I think that's an important kind of two step you've just done. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we today speak of the ongoing restoration, continuing revelation. And generally, we think of continuing revelation as revelation to the prophets, seers, and revelators. And there's certainly that, especially uh, when it comes to making decisions that are binding uh, on uh, the church. However, when we look at our history, when we look at religious history, 
what we see is that where, where there might be, where there will be errors, God is going to come and make things right. And the way he does that is not only by speaking to prophets, seers, and revelators. It is also by finding this lonely person. Somehow, that person may be found through literature, through newspapers, through, uh, in Haiti, for instance, uh, the church uh, entered Haiti with the fact that, you know, Haiti is close to the, to the United States, and there is people who are going to the United States to visit friends, and there is this person who, uh, from the U.S., went to Haiti with a Book of Mormon and a pamphlet of the First Vision. And there is this man who uh, is of Jewish-Palestinian Jewish ancestry, but of Haitian citizenship. Um, he finds a copy of, of the Book of Mormon that way through a relative who did not want to give him the Book of Mormon. That person, however, accepted to give him the pamphlet of the first vision. And he reads it, and that was it. And in Nigeria, uh, we have these people writing to ask about literature and these people having dreams. And, and, and I find that not unusual. You know, Armin Moss, uh, as he was explaining the presence of what we would call Masonic, right? Masonic elements in our temple rituals. He went on to say that, People who are confused about that don't understand how God works with prophets and how prophets, even though because they are deeply immersed in the culture, God is going to reveal to them things in their own idioms and biography. Dreams, that's part of the idioms and biography of people in Nigeria. And so God speaks to them that way. Um, and so this idea of a restoration that is um, self-existent, in a sense, we, I'd like to tie it to this no, no unhallowed, or let's remove the unhallowed, no human hands, be it Brother Russell, be it Brother Brigham, be it Brother Joseph F. Smith, uh, no one can stop the work from progressing in spite of the hurt and concern. And then there is indeed, uh, you know, uh, th this complexity uh, in, the, in the history. It's, it's not only uh, Brigham Young. In fact, successive prophets, seers and revelators are going to inherit much that they think were. Uh, to, to rephrase a little bit from Lord of the Rings here. And that is going to, to be um, the, the problem here. But again, it's several of them. And I want it to be clear that I hope, you know, generally we think of a great judgment. Certainly I will have lots of questions for them, but I, what I think will happen when we reunite is that we will embrace each other. Even Joseph F. Smith, I would like to believe that he will embrace Jane Manning James and will realize what Jane Manning James, how the, the way Jane Manning James signed her letter, your brother in the gospel, that we are brothers and sisters in spite of, or thanks to, depending on what we're thinking about when I say in spite of. I don't want to, to be too lengthy here. I tend to be... Um, Talkative.
So, um, so your comments about um, as a, uh, yeah, Joseph Fielding Smith, um, you know, a lot of times there's a sense like we have to somehow save um, church leaders from <laughs> their racism, um, from, from having to confront that. Where So when the Race and the Priesthood essay first came out, um, I can remember uh, kind of overhearing some women talking about it at, um, at a showing of um, the Jane Manning Jane, the Jane play, play at BYU. Um, and they were worried about, like, isn't Brigham Young getting thrown under the bus here? <laughs> uh, and my response to that was, I mean, he's been waiting for a long time to be able to repent. <laughs> and, uh, and we have some sense that like, they are not, um, you know, fully understanding um, their sins and, and having to confront that, uh, you know, that sin and that um, and kind I, of can direct I, can I so engagement with this actually, um, you know, allows them to, uh, to fully partake in the blessings of the atonement. Right. If I can continue on this idea of speculative uh, theology, it's not always good, but sometimes it's good, especially if it served the purpose of grace and of embrace. I, I really would like, want to believe that the person Anthony Obina saw in his dream is the archetype of the leaders who participated in the development in the articulation of the exclusionary policy. And so I'd like to believe that Brigham Young knows, Brigham Young and successive Peters, because it's not only Brigham Young. Again, um, if anything, Joseph F. Smith has a significant responsibility in this, and probably more than Brigham Young. And if anything, Bruce McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith, those who came up with a backing, a, a, a theological rational for the policy, and that made it so that successive prophets thought that it was a revelation grounded in scripture. They have that responsibility, but I also would like to believe that they know better and that they are the types that God sent to Anthony Obina to teach them something, not Anthony Obina. And allow me also to come back on this question of continuing revelation. I want to pay tribute because we Latter-day Saints believe that God revealed things in so many ways, by study and by faith. So I also want to pay tribute to Latter-day Saints scholars who made tremendous contribution leading to the 1978 revelation and who are continuing to contribute uh, after the revelation to help us see better. And God is to me speaking to these scholars as well. God has gifted them with talents that are absolutely needed in the kingdom. Anyway, I went off again. I get excited. <laughs> Amen. <about> and some <laughs> of that, some of that scholarship, uh, we're proud to have as part of the legacy of dialogue um, uh, as well. So um, again, I want to invite Grace and Lindsay to maybe say a, a few words before we officially close and maybe continue a little bit of the conversation. 
I'm especially interested in maybe talking uh, about the changes that are happening uh, at BYU as the church's flagship institution and talking about um, this issue. I know I've seen significant change over the 15 years that I've been there. Um, uh, yeah, I guess I can speak a little bit to BYU. Um, I think being a history major and being in the department in college that I was, I was spoiled in that I had teachers who were sensitive and who cared and who knew about what they were talking about. They were experts in these fields and I felt very supportive, but I feel like if you're out of the FHSS college as a person of color, your experience is nothing like that. You don't really have a whole lot of support um, and people to lean on and teachers that understand. And so I think it's it, really depends on BYU as where you're situated and who your community is, I think. Um, and I guess my only message is, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said today, um, but just for any white Latter-day Saint to really think introspectively. And when we call out a leader on their racism or we talk about these topics, like ask yourself why you feel so defensive. I think that's something that re people really need to think about. Like, why is it that I as a black Latter-day Saint and somebody who is related to Brigham Young can say he said and did terrible things and I can still have my faith. But why does that shake yours so much? I think that's something just to think, you know, just why is it so hard for you to accept that um, and just kind of do your own thinking that way? That's what I would say. And just adding on to that, I think, too, like there's a big fear of like complicated faith. I think we just, I mean, growing up, it's so much like faith is simple, faith is simple. But I think that when we're dealing with complicated issues, that our faith needs to be nuanced and needs to have complexity to it in order to be able to keep it and also know the historical facts and the historical um, significance that for the priesthood ban had on Black Latter-day Saints and on White Latter-day Saints and continues to have. Great, thank you. I was excited that Grace and Lindsay could be here today um, and uh, kind of watching them and um, other students of color at BYU, I really uh, you know, see in action um, the restoration like uh, Carter talked about, um, that it's not just church leaders, that it's um, everyday folks who are, uh, who are bringing us uh, closer to closer to God and closer to um, the truth of his inclusive message. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we, um, uh, we hope you'll join us in two weeks on Sunday, December 26th. We debated whether to have a lesson uh, on that day or not, since it's the day after Christmas, but knew that having Darren Perry, the former chairman of the Northwest Shoshone Band of the Shoshone uh, uh, Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation as our guest teacher would make for a very special day. Uh, Lindsay will offer our closing prayer. Dearly Father, thank thee so much for this day and thank thee so much that we were able to come and gather and talk about um, the history of our church and the significance um, that the priesthood and temple ban has had on it. And please help us that as we try to build our faith that we might be able to have open hearts and open minds and that we might be able to have the gift of revelation in order to um, come to terms with the historical facets of our church and also to um, continue on to build a better future. 
um, please help us that we might be able to see within ourselves the changes that we can make um, and the ways that we can help our fellow Latter-day Saints um, in this endeavor. And we love thee so much. And we say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.